Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, uh, Barry Katz. This is a really uh, exciting uh, show for me. Very, very exciting because sometimes, you know, you do these interviews and you're you're sitting across from people that you've been in meetings with or you've known through certain sales of television shows or films. And very rarely do I get to sit down across from somebody who was an inspiration to me when I first started and treated me like I belonged even before I belonged. And that's uh, Carol Leifer, uh, who in my mind is one of the greatest comedians of my, I'm getting emotional, of my, of my generation and um, of anybody's generation and also one of the greatest uh, writers and showrunners and creators and producers that I've ever uh, been around. And if you noticed, I said that and I, I didn't put the moniker on one of the greatest female comedians or one of the greatest female writers because when I'm around Carol Leifer, when I've always been around Carol Leifer, I don't uh, lump her into any category I never have. It's just I lump her into the category of, of extraordinary and greatness. And so as I always like to do is tell sort of a six degrees of separation story in my life. God, I am getting emotional about this. Um, I was a, a stand-up comedian. I, I would, was doing stand-up comedy in Boston, and I was running a few comedy rooms, and... 
I used to do something very risky on Saturday nights at my comedy club called Play It Again Sam's. I would hire a comedian named Lenny Clark, who you may know as he was a cast member on Lara Cat and later on on Rescue Me, series regular. And Lenny Clark was like, he was like the mayor of Boston. He ran for the mayor of Boston. He was incredible. He, he, it wasn't that his material was uh, anything you'd uh, compare to like Jerry Seinfeld's or Chris Rock or Carol Leifer's. But he was one of those comedians that we've all run into in our time, if you follow comedy, that had that personality where he could just talk about a doorknob for an hour and, and make you laugh. But you could never point to any one joke that, you know, I remember he used to start off his set and he did this on the show that I'm about to talk about. This is an example of one of Lenny Clark's kind of routines. He'd say, you know, when I'm feeling down and out and shitty about myself, what I do is I get a bottle of Jack Daniels. Uh, I go to the cemetery. I get drunk. I walk around. I say to myself, hey, at least I'm a lot better than these fucking people. <laughs> that was the kind of material that Lenny Clark would do. But Lenny Clark and his brother, for some reason, took me under their wing. I don't know why. And they said, hey, listen, Barry... If you want to travel to New York, and again, this was somewhere in the late 80s, uh, Lenny is going to open up the HBO Young Comedian special with Rodney Dangerfield. And back then, for those of you who are, aren't as old as I am, the HBO Young Comedian special with Rodney happened every other year. And if you were lucky enough to do yours with Rodney, you talk about a rating spike the people who were on the shows that weren't with Rodney, I'm not saying a lot of them didn't make it. They did make it. You know, Judd Apatow was never on a young comedian special with Rodney Dangerfield, but he did fine. But it was just something magical. It was in this club. Rodney would be walking around with a, you know, some kind of a bathrobe. Uh, Lord knows if he had any underwear on. And he was just like, it was, it was craziness. And, the, and if you've ever been to Dangerfields in New York, the darkest comedy room in history. It was like a it was like a cave, and the waiters were looked like they were from the Sands Hotel in Vegas from 1950. They would be wearing the red like tuxedo tops and everything, the black pants, and it was a very formal thing. And Rodney, because of his commercial endorsement and ties, if you were a drinker, you only had two choices: Miller and Miller Lite for beer. That was it. And so I traveled down. They got me tickets to the Young Comedian Special. I didn't know who was on. I didn't know what to expect. All I knew was that I loved comedy and I wanted to be a part of comedy. I wanted to feel what it was like to be a part of the big show. And for some amazing reason, I was seated in the front row on the stage left of Dangerfields for this special. And it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. It was the first taping I was ever at. It was really the first time I'd ever been out of town to New York to see comedy. And it was one of the first times I got a chance to see people who Rodney anointed to be the next stars of the business. And that was a, a, a historic night because uh, I got a chance to see two people that later had a big influence on me in different ways. The first person uh, that I remember, it's going to uh, stand in my mind uh, before I talk about Carol, 
is Andrew Dice Clay. Because I was in the lobby, and I only remembered Andrew as Andrew Silverstein. I, I never remembered Andrew as Andrew Dice Clay, because I've been doing comedy clubs in Boston. And here he walks in, and he's got this, you know, leather jacket. He's, he's, there's spikes. He's smoking inside, which you could do back then, and he's bigger than life. And I remember a big floral arrangement got delivered and it was handed to him by this maitre d' Bobby who had been there for like 30 years and Dice opens the the card and I'm just I just walked up and he opens the card and it says something to the effect of hey Dice uh good luck to you uh have a great show from all your friends at the comedy store love Mitzi Shore and I thought, my God, what a thoughtful thing. This is the first thing I'm seeing in comedy in New York. Wow, L.A. and New York, they get together, they work well together. Dice looks at the card after he reads it. He rips the card up, throws it on the ground, says, fuck Mitzi Shore, and hands the flowers back to Bobby. So that's my first thing coming in. I'm thinking, oh, man, this isn't uh, what comedy is cracked up to be. And I'd never met Carol before, and the show was going along well, and people were doing well, but I noticed that the kind of comedy that they were doing, like Barry Sobel and Lenny Clark, were more like a, it was more entertainment. It wasn't so much as cerebral comedy. Like Barry Sobel used to have an entire routine about punchlines to jokes, so you'd hear him for like 15 minutes going, King Kong balls, I thought you said ping pong ball, you know, just all these things. And then Carol went on stage, and it was an incredible, incredible performance. Uh, one that, you know, because it was a boys club there. It was just, it was just a testosterone-filled evening. And Carol went on, and she just took the room and the comedy was like, it was a different lane. It was a different gear. And normally when you're doing the gear of cerebral, brilliant stand-up comedy, well-constructed, thought-out jokes and punchlines, it's very hard to follow people who are doing 10 minutes of punchlines to jokes. Very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't difficult for Carol Liefer. And I remember her going on, and I just, I, I was just stunned at how powerful the jokes were and how there was a wink-wink to every kind of situation of, of your place in the world and where you were going to go. And I remember after the show, I only searched out one person to talk to, and that was Carol Liefer. And... um I remember I sat down with her after the first show had cleared and she was sitting with me. She took the time. Can to... I jump in? Yes. And then you brought me flowers with a card and I ripped up the card. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, fuck Barry Katz. <laughs> I couldn't help it, Barry. <laughs> Thank you. That's funny. It's great. You're always thinking. And so what I wanted hmm. to say here was is that she took the time with me she made me feel like a million bucks and she let me know that it 
even though comedy and comedians in this world wasn't a safe place to work, that she gave me her time. She took the time while all the other comedians were in the dressing room doing whatever they were doing. She stayed out and she talked to me and inspired me. Do you remember what you said to me? I mean, besides a nice show or something like that, did you have a comment or a question? Because um, yes, I did. I I I don't remember this conversation. Well, how, could you, how could you remember? Because I was wearing a suit with colors not found in nature. But basically, what I was uh, asking you was about the transition from working hard to getting this break. And then on my side of the business, how I was going to be in a situation to take what I was doing in Boston uh-huh. to the next level right. to where I could be in New York doing the kind of things you were doing. Well, and, I don't know what, how I answered because I have no answer for that. Well, Still you, to this day in 2014. Because in your book, How yes, to Succeed what, in Business Without Barry? Really Crying, That's right. Lessons from a Life in Comedy, you'll find these things. So I just want to button this by saying yes. that this... In comedy, in any part of your life or in any kind of business, the key is is that to rally around and hang with people who treat you right, who treat you with respect, and give you the time to inspire you. And hopefully, as you go on in life, that you'll be in a situation where you pay it forward and do the same for those people as well. Yes. And... What I found throughout my entire career is those are the people I rally around. Those are the people that I want to be around. And if you're out there listening, if you can find the great people who you can rally around, who can inspire you and get you to the next level and get your mind ready to go to the next level, please do everything in your power to hang around those people and not the assholes. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. 
I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. My guest today uh, needs uh, no introduction, but coincidentally, I'm going to give her one anyway because it's unbelievable and I'm excited (laughs) and I'm happy and we're going to have the greatest time. Carol Leifer is a four-time Emmy nominee for her writing on such shows as Seinfeld, Modern Family, Saturday Night Live, The Larry Sanders Show, and seven Academy Award telecasts. She has starred in five of her own comedy specials, which have aired on Showtime, HBO, and Comedy Central. Her previous book was the national bestseller, When You Lie About Your Age, The Terrorist Win, and she's currently available Amazon available <laughs> Barnes on and Amazon, Noble. Barnes and Noble. <laughs> and Carol is currently the co-executive producer of Devious Maids on Lifetime. Her new book, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying, is a hilarious collection of essays which chart her extraordinary three-decade journey through show business, illuminating her many triumphs and some missteps along the way, mm-hmm. and offering valuable lessons for women and men in any profession. It's part memoir, part guide to life, and all incredibly funny. How to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying offers all of us tips and tricks for getting ahead, finding our way, and opening locked doors, even if you have to use a sledgehammer. Please welcome my guest today, the lovely, the talented, Carol Leifer. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. All right. Everybody take your seats now. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) That's such a lovely tribute to start our podcast with. But, you know, I really do talk a lot about that in my book because, you know, I think people should just be nice to people just because it's the right thing to do. But especially I'm when you came over to me that night at Dangerfields, I was just doing what other comics did for me when I was starting out and going over and being curious. It's always nice to be kind to your brethren of whatever you do for a living, because my book is not just about show business. It's really about everything. But it really does also. um, And I talk about it, too. As a business person, it's really smart to be nice because, man, can that trip you up when you're an asshole to people and you see it as someone like myself who I've been in the business now. I mean, For almost over 30 years, right? Yeah, almost 40 years. 37, I believe. Yes. I'm going into my 38th, which is like crazy. Well, you look crazy. Like you're oh, Barry, finish your thought, but thanks. Um, <laughs> no, but I, I mean it because I went and pitched a show to NBC a couple weeks ago and meeting the people. Hi, Harry, and <laughs> And then this woman says, Oh, we know each other. Oh, really? How's that? Yeah, I was your agent's assistant. At CAA. And it's like, oh, Shannon, hey, how are you? Great to see you. And you know how nice that was to sit down for a pitch meeting and know I'm always nice to assistants because I know that's a shitty job and you get dumped on a lot. But I always go out of my way to be nice to assistants because they're good people. And look at that. If I had been the shitty person to the assistant on the phone, now what a payback that would be. And now you're pitching to me, fucker. <laughs> okay, good luck, you know? So, it's good to be nice. Now, I remember a time when you've been so nice to me, and I finally <laughs> had the opportunity to bring you into my comedy club in, in Boston called Play It Again, Sam. Okay. I thought it was the Boston Comedy Club. I'm well, wrong. Well, that was in New York. Oh, okay. But in, in Boston. Oh, in Boston. 
I had kept in contact with you, and I had had Paula Poundstone do the first headline. I never, it was a showcase club, as many New York clubs were, where comics work for $6 right. and a bucket of chicken. Yeah. But I had taken a chance and booked Paula Poundstone in for a, a week, and she sold out every show. And I thought to myself, well, you know, if I'm going to bring Paula in and this works, I've got to get Carol. And mm -hmm. I brought you in uh, for a week, and I'll never forget this because... Um, I actually was fearful because I wanted everything to be perfect for you. But I okay. realized I made a critical mistake and I was trying to figure out a way to make it right. What was that? The, the critical mistake I the made. The check bounced? No, no. <laughs> I wish that was all it was. No, what happened was is that I remembered the HBO special and how these comedians went on and they were dirty or they were not doing the right okay. kind of material. Right. And you were killing afterwards. And I thought there was a young comedian that I was working with at the time when I first started as a manager named Nick DiPaolo. Okay. Yes. No, Nick. Love Nick. Is a brilliant, brilliant stand-up comedian but one of the darkest <laughs> souls and the material very blue and um and you were hanging out in the dressing room and i had said i just have an opening act i'm putting on here whatever and you kept coming out and saying who's the opening act i would be talking to you and i'm just <laughs> yeah, sort of yeah. blocking the doorway and i was afraid that you'd see something but i was silly in a way because you could handle anything but you were very very clear on what you wanted how you wanted it and you went on and you and you destroyed the place, and it was just amazing. But I knew that Nick wasn't going to be on that show anymore. <laughs> right. I had to put some, I think I put Jonathan Katz on or something uh, okay. on that, the rest of the show. Yeah, no, and I still have that now when I uh, do my stand-up. You know, who you follow is important. Nick is brilliant and hysterical, but when you work like I do in a lower kind of key, lower... Uh, tempo kind of thing it's hard for me to follow guys who are big and brash and uh don't work clean because i always worked clean which is also another nice thing about my career at this stage you know i started a curse for a while and i remember jay leno coming into the improv and taking me aside and saying you know you're good you're really good but you're cursing too much on stage as a crutch and that's gonna really you win the battle but lose the war i'd keep it clean and now I have a really fantastic corporate speaking career because I can go and perform for these corporations and keep it really PG. And that's so much I go back to that piece of advice from Jay Leno, you know. But, um, yeah, who you follow is very important. You like to bring your—now uh, I like to bring my own kind of people, you know, when you can do that. What comedians move you that no one knows about? Like, who are the people that you find brilliant that you, if you were Rodney and you had your own HBO Young Comedian special, some of the people that you find really special that you would give a shot to? Um, I, you know, I don't think there's anybody brilliant out there who hasn't been discovered yet. I mean, I think they're, uh, the brilliant people are out there and on it. It's just, uh, I always like to follow someone whose tone is kind of like mine. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, I do that. It's interesting what you said about the, uh, uh, the act and when you were a little bit dirty, Jay took you aside. I was at the improv the other night and I saw a young comedian who'd done Letterman about a year ago, Ali Wong. Okay. Okay. Great set on Letterman. Really wonderful. This little petite you know five foot woman just 
killing it on the big stage. It's always uh-huh. interesting to me when you see a little person walk out yeah. and a bit larger. <laughs> right. And then I went to the improv. I was there and I saw her do an hour and she was doing a lot of blue material. Uh-huh. Now it's not my place to take her aside right, right. and say anything, but I, I was watching. She was killing. Yeah. But I was like, where does it, where do you go? Yeah, where, yeah. Where do you go with that? And you, you know where you go and Jay knows where you go and she'll eventually figure it out as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, Advice is a tricky thing because you have to be, you know, when I came up with those comedians that you were talking about, it was a very fraternal time of people watching each other. You know, that's always my biggest misconception about people, uh, about stand-up, two things. It's always that think it was like cutthroat and you're always looking to trip the person up on stage and, you know, very competitive that way. I found it to be the 180 of that. And maybe part of it was also that I was female and a little bit kind of seen as a kid sister and maybe not as competitive with the guys. But people were very great about watching each other, giving each other. I I have tons of advice that I actually share in my book of things that people told me along the way that really turned out to be very smart things. So that's, I think, the biggest misconception about stand-up. But the other thing is that people think that comedians, you know, do you practice in the mirror? (laughs) (laughs) Like, no, no one ever has practiced in the mirror. I don't know why you think that, but that's so funny to me that people always, you know, think that. But going back to comedians, like, there's a guy when I gig, I like to bring along a guy named Bobby Tessel. I know Bobby Tessel. He's from Colorado. He did the the Letterman show about uh, seven years ago. Yeah, yeah. He's real solid. Every joke is killer, and it really fits my speed. And I know when I follow Bobby, the audience is warmed up exactly where I want them to be. Like there's a woman, Stephanie Blum, who's very funny. Uh And I used her to open for me, and she's fantastic. The problem is she's a little too much like me. (laughs) <laughs> in the Jewy woman world and all that kind of thing. So as much as I love Stephanie, Bobby might be a better fit. You know what I mean? But I do think the fit is important with a comedian. You know, it's it's definitely, uh, it's a whole show and you want the, the pieces of the show to fit nicely. But can I just tell you another story? Yes, you can. And I'm talking about a lot about my book that's out now, How to Succeed in Business Without Really correct. Crying. And I talk... It's so funny because I chose, there are so many stories in this book about uh, comedians helping other people, comedians helping me, you know, and how nice of you to kind of start the show off that way. Well, it's kind of a theme. It is a theme. But what's great that I wrote about in the book, and I'm so glad that it's down in print now that she's gone, is I have a story about Joan Rivers. Of course you do. Yes, you do. And what happened was I went to a gig, corporate gig. You know, these things are in ballrooms there. I don't bring an agent or manager with me. I show up, I go on stage, I see the mic, I see the stand. I don't see a follow spot. And I'm like, oh, great. Now, what am I going to do? And I go over to the tech guy and I go, hello, I'm the comedian. Stand, mic. But where's my follow spot? And the guy looked at me like, oh, sorry, Cher. (laughs) We don't have your spotlight, you know? And I was like, no, you don't understand. It's kind of important when the lights are down that it's part of my rider and part of my, the guy could give two shits. So I'm like, all right, great. I'm going to have to, like most comedians do, grin and bear it and just have to go on and do my thing. 
well, Joan Rivers barrels in. They had apparently hired her to do five minutes at the top and then bring me on. (laughs) And Joan Rivers comes in, gives me a lovely hello, and then says, where's the follow spot? (laughs) And the tech guy is standing there. And it's one of those great moments of schadenfreude of like, you know, when a guy road rage cuts you off and then you see him a little later, you know, CPH. I mean, the cops have, you know, uh, pulled them over. And Joan was like incensed about it. And then went on stage and did her thing and then said, okay, I'm only here for five minutes. Your headliner is doing an hour. There's no follow spot. If you don't give her a thousand percent attention, I'm going to take everybody's name here. I'm going to go away. I mean, it was so fantastic. And it was the exact story I wanted to choose even before knowing that she would, you know, her untimely death of the greatest act of generosity, of all the acts of generosity, I had to choose from, Joan Rivers shows up and goes, this is bullshit, okay? And when she spoke, people jumped, you know? Wow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you spoke to me in Boston, I jumped. As I like to do, Carol, I like to go way, 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 way back. Okay. All right? To the way back machine with Sherman and Peabody. Yeah. And I'd like you to take me to where... You grew up, your family life mm-hmm. a little bit. Okay. And take me to your first moments when you realized, I want to be in this crazy business. And what was the inspiration for okay. it? Okay. Well, that happened very early on. Uh, I think for a couple of reasons. I grew up in a little town on Long Island called East Williston, Long Island. And um, the way I always describe it to people, if they've never been to Long Island, um, if they've never been there, every girl in my neighborhood looked like Kenny G. (laughs) 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 Um, But I grew up there, but my biggest comedy influence was my dad because my dad was an optometrist by trade and his name was Seymour. So talk about predestination, (laughs) but he really loved comedy and my family loved comedy so he played played comedy albums all the time I mean the family could lip sync the 2000 year old man you know Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner album but like Alan Sherman records and you know there was always it's something I feel is missing in today's culture you know with when you were a kid, you were captive to your parents' tastes. And if you were lucky like me and they had really good tastes, especially in comedy, um, I got a real great comedy education, you know, by osmosis. But that kind of doesn't happen now with everybody having their own earbuds, you know. But my dad was funny. He was a joke teller. So I would watch him mesmerize people, you know, telling jokes. I mean, I've still yet to meet a pro who tells a joke better than my dad did. And I could see early on, this is what I wanted to do. And I mean, when I was a kid, I sold tickets around my neighborhood. This is when you could do that as a eight-year-old kid without getting your head chopped off, you know, and sell tickets and throw shows in the basement, you know, of my house. What kind of shows? I don't know. I mean, we'd just get up and do goofy stuff and, you know, a penny a ticket or whatever. I remember like Mr. O'Connor across the street was like, here's a buck, you know, I'll sell the place out or whatever. But I always wanted, you know, to perform and all that and going on a summer camp and in school, I was in shows and everything. But 
you know, I start my book by saying, find something you love to do and you'll never work a day in your life. And I really feel strongly about that. If you find your passion and you can make your living at it, I mean, then you've hit the jackpot. Absolutely. Yeah. You have hit the jackpot. Yeah. So, you know, it, it was really until I went to college in uh, Binghamton, New York, upstate. SUNY Binghamton. SUNY Binghamton. Now it's known as just Binghamton University. I used to own a restaurant across the street from the uh, arena there. Oh, wow. Mm. How did that do? Not well. Oh. <laughs> um, but uh, Paul Reiser was in a theater group with me. And he was known as the funny guy of the theater group, and I was kind of the funny gal. And we started to date, and he told me, you know, during the summers, I go down to these comedy clubs. You know, this is when they were first starting springing up. I go down to these nightclubs, and I'm like, who's this guy? Like Vic Damone talking about <laughs> nightclubs, you know? And he was like, I go to these audition nights, and I watched Paul. And no surprise, he was amazing from the second he went on stage doing this stuff. I put five minutes together and I started to do it too. And lo and behold, you know, we passed these auditions and... When you say you pass the auditions for our audience, I don't think they understand what the auditions are to pass for a comedy club, what it means, what you do, like Silver Friedman at, right. the, at well, the Improv and, uh, and Bud before that at 44th and Yes, 9th. but, you know, what's so amazing about my comedy, you know, journey is that the night that I went on at the comic strip, which is now called Comic Strip Live in New York. 82nd and 2nd, I believe. Right, between 82 and 83. And Paul and I went on. The MC that night was Jerry Seinfeld, who passed us on the audition, which basically meant they liked your five minutes. And it was like the big crown and glory of now you can hang out. And that was a big deal. And the night that I went on A Catch Rising Star, Larry David was the MC who passed me there. So I literally go back to my day one of show business with these guys. I mean, it's really phenomenal. I always say it's all about relationships. Mm -hmm. And in your book, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying. Yes, love it, Barry. I, be <laughs> I believe you talk about a situation <laughs> on Seinfeld when they were hiring you as a writer and when you interviewed with them. They felt like you were the kind of a nice person, a really nice person. And the quote was, I believe, a person who could be a great hang. The easy hang. The easy I, hang. I do See, talk I about that. Things. Yes, See, I yes. Do research. Right. Talk about that in the book. Well, I knew those guys, obviously, for a long time. And I was lucky. It was a nice piece of serendipity that I had no sitcom experience when they were looking specifically to hire writers who had no sitcom experience. Larry David, in particular, was like, I don't want anybody who's been corrupted by the system. You know, that's the kind of disdain that he had for sitcoms at the time. So these seasoned writers who had been on, you know, the big shows at the time, Roseanne and Murphy Brown, they were turned down. So it was a lucky break for me. But they talked about that a lot, Larry and Jerry, hiring people who are an easy hang because you spend so much of your day with these people, you, you know, it doesn't matter how brilliant somebody is as a writer. If you don't like hanging out with them, it's not going to work. And Yeah. And that's one of the things about the comedy club scene, which uh, a lot of you who aren't in the business should know. And I'm sure it's true of other professions as well. You go to these comedy clubs and it's the weirdest thing. You, you, you normally go places to put in the work. Yeah. You want to put in the work. 
but 50% of the work a lot of times back then was creating the relationships and making the people around you feel safe to be around you, that you were a good person. And then when you went on stage, if you were a great performer, it made them respect you and want to hang out with you more. These days, I think comedians are, aren't as good at the hang, and sometimes they're a little more adversarial and they 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 kind of roasting you a little bit but there still are certain places where the hang is really great uh and we all know those places uh, you know the comedy cellar in new york or you know maybe caroline's in the right, area right. there or maybe at the uh, improv here or the laugh factory yeah and sometimes the comedy store if you can uh take the darkness <laughs> um but keep going here so you're back you pass in these comedy clubs right then what's the next thing that the happens? next step that happened was i was a junior in college in binghamton paul had graduated and i had to make a choice do i take this opportunity at the comic strip and start working here. But how do I satisfy my Jewish parents and become a college graduate at the same time? So I transfer. So I asked my folks if it was okay, if I could pursue my dream and I transferred to Queens college. Of course, my joke about Queens college is it wasn't very hard to finish school because Queens is very tough school. You know, you need like a pen to get in. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, I really do credit my parents a lot because when I told them I wanted to do this, uh, you know, any any parent could have been like, this is a Meshuggah kind of dream, Carol, and finish school and stop fucking around. My dad was like, you know what, Carol, you got to strike while the iron's hot. I remember my dad saying that. And also... Uh, very proud that he also said, you know, stand up is a big cash business and you can't beat cash, Carol. <laughs> so he was smart in that way, too. But um, and then I started to take my comedy journey, which was I, I would go to Queens College during the day and finish, which wasn't very difficult. And then at night I would um, hang out and go on. And, you know, another thing I talk a lot about in the book that's specific to comedians, but also, uh, you know, uh, so important for all of businesses. The only way you get good as a comedian is to suck a lot. You have to really be bad and eat it a lot to get good. And there's no way around it. Nobody just goes on and is great all the time. And you get better by being bad. And, and it, so, and, it, and it's true. And it's 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 very very difficult because you know in other professions. You can make mistakes and be bad and maybe one person sees your mistake or maybe five people in the office see your mistake. You make a mistake as a comedian and, you know, 200 people see it and all your peers see it. And granted, they laugh at your demise up there. They they love it because they want to see that. I think the most amazing thing as a comedian, you said no one, and I'm going to go a little toe-to-toe with you on this. We've all seen those examples of the one in a thousand comic who goes on on his first time on stage, gets a standing ovation, and never looks back. Right. And those are the ones that are the rarest of the rare. Like the late John Panette, even though an entertainer and also did the final episode of Seinfeld, by the way. Um, I remember I was there at Nick's Comedy Stop, and he came in. He was wearing a suit. He was like 350 pounds, this baby-faced accountant. Mm Mm-hmm. Just got a standing ovation, and he just started headlining right away. He never wow! Even ha- he never even had you know five minutes or whatever. Yeah, so now that is the rare. But it's very very rare. Yeah, that's like the meteor. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because what's great about failing is you learn how to fix the mistake. Like 
as a comic, the first time you hear people talking in the audience or you're losing their energy, you know, you feel you're losing them. Um, you have to learn to come up with tricks to get them back. You know, another thing I talk about in the book is I think that comics, especially good comics, are very good people, people, because when you're on stage, it's really cracked me up. I opened for Seinfeld in San Diego and my uh, partner's cousins came and the show was great. I mean, opening for him is a dream. The audience is fantastic. And uh, my partner's cousin emailed me and said, I don't know if you could hear the audience tonight, but they loved you. <laughs> you know, and that's another misconception that I think is so funny. about. Uh, it's like, oh, I heard them. I'm hearing my ears are tuned to every second of when I'm out there. But what's great about it, what it teaches you as a comic that you need to learn as a person in business is it's a conversation with people. It's not you performing and they're just out there in the dark. Uh, I'm up there thinking, oh, I'm losing them. Maybe I better talk to the audience a little bit or, ooh, that joke really threw them or they didn't get that joke. It, you know, it moving around because, you know, the other thing is I'm sure you've been in so many meetings with someone where you're like someone else is speaking and you're like, is this person not getting that they're, they've glazed over their, you know, the audience in this room is not getting it at all. And someone, you know, comics are very adept at switching gears because it's your life up on stage, you know? Yeah. Buddy Hackett used to call it the monitor. Yeah. His internal monitor. Really? Always. Yes. Hmm. And so take me through when you knew that I'm never going to do anything else besides <laughs> comedy and comedy related right. business. What was the moment that happened that you're like, it's over. No more Queens College, yeah, no yeah. more day job. <laughs> I am in it now. Well, okay. So my first year, while well, I'm learning, finished my degree. Then I got a job as a, a receptionist for a private eye. And um, I talk about this too because... Um, you know, it's an important lesson in you don't ask, you don't get, which is another one of my tenets of business. Um, you know, I think just as, as a sidebar for a second, one of my biggest foundation pieces of business and being in the business as long as I have and continuing for many years on, I hope, is you have to be tenacious and you have to go after what you want and you have to be the squeaky wheel. But it's very also tempered with you can't be the pain in the ass. It's a fine line that you have to find, but you have to be super aggressive Um but anyway, with this job, I saw this ad for this guy who wanted a typist. I was good from high school typing. Private eye. I thought this is going to be exciting, you know. Even though I'm typing, it'll be in a private eye's office. And the hours were 9 to 5, and I'm thinking, I can't do this, though, because... <laughs> I go on stage, I would have spots that were literally like 1.10 a.m., you know, 2.30 p.m. And I'm like, how am I going to do this? And I went and I interviewed with this private eye, and he was like, I'll hire you. Your typing is good enough. It was people who, like, were taking polygraph tests uh -huh. for places working as diverse as Burger King and escort services. So <laughs> that waiting room was really interesting. It was like a Fellini movie. But what... <laughs> was great was when he hired me, I said to him, would you consider this? Would you consider if I worked 11 to six without a lunch? And 
for some reason, this guy was like, okay, get the work done. You can do it. So 11 a.m., I could still be a comic and make it, you know, during the day. And I'd eat my, you know, lunch at my desk and it's fine. And it worked out great. And then I just started to get these Jersey gigs, which were 40 bucks cash a night. And Phil Selman. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure that was, you know, Jim Balazzo's. Jim Balazzo. All these bookers. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, those memories of those, um, and I, God, reminisce <laughs> about, you know, a guy picked me up once for a Jersey gig. I get in his car and I'm like, um, you don't have a rear view mirror. And the guy was like, honey, I get it all from the sides. <laughs> It's like, okay, here we go. Um, Headed for the Jersey Turnpike. But, you know, (laughs) I started to make enough money that it was like a meager living, but enough that it was like, I really think I can give up my day job. And from then, you know, I've never looked back, but it's a very, if you talk about the high points of a long career, definitely the day that I, and you know, I liked my boss, George, the private eye, he was very nice, but to not have to do something to supplement your, you know, when I went to day one, I said, if I can make my living being a comedian, I didn't have aspirations yet of being a writer, but if I can do this from comedy, I've hit pay dirt. I mean, that's it. And I still think to many people listening out there to be able to make your living at what you love to do is hitting pay dirt. And boy, is it ever. I always say that if you had all the money in the world and the health of yourself and your family, but you had to go to work and do something 40, 50 hours a week, what would it be? And if you figure out what that is, that's what you should be going for. Yeah, absolutely. And so, but when you're starting, like who were the comedians that like you looked up to? And I mean, you looked up to, they were the ones who were like working in the big theaters and the arena and you were like, man, will I ever be as funny as these people? Or did you always know you'd be as funny? No, I mean, when you go into this or anything, a creative business, you really take your life in your hands because you don't have the confidence yet to know that it's going to work. It's just really a shot in the dark. But I always talk about that when I started, Elaine Boozer was a major, major influence to me. And I really feel like with the history of comedy, I feel I'm angry that more people don't, that she's not more known in the because in the history of comedy because she was such an important figure and so seminal in so many ways because between Joan Rivers and Tody Fields and Phyllis Diller Elaine was the first kind of modern single woman doing material that wasn't am I right ladies kind of material it wasn't segregating the audience. She went up, she did her thing. That's not to say she didn't talk about issues that were relevant to women, but she went out like one of the guys. And that's not to say she, you know, still feminine and attractive and all that, but smart, funny, well-crafted jokes. And when I saw her on the cover of New York Magazine, and she was right before I started, um, I thought, wow, there's somebody doing what I want to do, you know? Um, a very modern version of what women are thinking about. And so she was a star to me. And she was the bridge for those of you listening. She was, in my opinion, 
the bridge between Toady Fields, Joan Rivers, Absolutely. and these artists, and the newer generation yes. of comedians who she inspired, and she was fantastic. She really was. and I'm so glad you mentioned her. Yeah, yeah. Have you had her on? I haven't had her on yet. I know she doesn't do a lot of press. So I don't want to say that. Oh, have her on because she probably, I probably, she probably wouldn't do it. But she's uh, so such an important figure in comedy. If people don't know her, go watch her um, live now or watch her YouTube's. And you know, I think you'll be stupefied because forty years ago she was really revolutionary absolutely yeah and, and there was a guy named david say that brings back a lot of memories yeah because he was a hot shot at catch rising star when i went there and i remember he came over to me because auditioning i did a bit about uh somebody ripping off a mattress tag and a thing about the cops you know <laughs> pulling them over and stuff like that and he kind of cornered me you know that's this lenny bruce bit or something like that and i was like i don't know mr say you know like <laughs> yeah you can't do that you can't do bits that other people do okay okay no problem you know but it was kind of like um i'm gonna go on a limb because something stays with me and i'm, I'm always scared when i say this because you're gonna say oh barry that wasn't my bit or whatever i seem to remember a bit where you talked about this stayed with me God, I'm gonna I'm gonna end this. Uh, you'll end this podcast and and quit after I ruin this one. <laughs> but something about riding a bus or a train and that empty seat next to you. Yes. And it's like I, I remember this vividly because you know you had advice for people like you know because there's always somebody <laughs> sitting next to you where you you know I'm just paraphrasing where you can't see your arms for four hours. So how do you keep the seat empty? Person walks up. Yes. And they look down at the seat and they say, "Excuse me, ma'am, is anybody sitting there?" And you look up and you say, "No." one except the lord that's right <laughs> i'll never forget that see i yes. remember these things you know what's so nice about that and thank you so much you know i love show people i really do you know i mean we smile when we are low i don't know if you've heard that or not but no i really have an affinity for all of show business people and you know josh charles who I love from The Good Wife, and I've done a few benefits with and whatever. I, I ran into him at an Emmy thing, and he just came over to me and he said, you know, whenever I go on a plane, I think of your <laughs> Lord bit, Carol. And you know how that made, like, not even my day, like, the rest of my year, you know? It's so wonderful. So thank you for remembering oh, my I, I bits remember that so I still I remember do. so many of your stuff. I remember something about... Uh, I'm, now, I'm, now I'm on a roll. I've got to say one more thing. Uh, something where there's a wink, wink to something was like, uh, uh, <clears throat> I don't have any children, but, well, none that I know of. That's right. Something yes. like that, right? Mm -hmm. that, was, that was probably of my stand-up. That's the thing that people remember the most. Oh, yes. So and then I had to go and ruin that and adopt a child <laughs> and take away the best bit of my act. That's okay. There'll be more of the, you'll yeah. have another hour of material out <laughs> right. of adoption. And so one of the things I want to talk about is one of your first huge breaks, which people, if you want to hear a, a story about persistence and never giving up, back when Carol and Jerry and, and Larry and Elaine were doing comedy, I'm sure you've all heard, there was really only one place where you could go that would really garner respect. Yes, you could do a set on the Merv Griffin show or the Mike Douglas show at four o'clock in the afternoon. And if you were George Wallace, you know, that worked very well right. during those times. You yeah. could always kill with that, that audience or whatever. But if you were a comedian, you wanted to do 
The Tonight Show mm -hmm. with Johnny Carson. Yes. And unfortunately, uh, the law of supply and demand, there were a lot of comedians and there weren't a lot of spots. You know, maybe The Tonight Show put on 10 comedians a year, maybe 12, maybe 15. And there were repeats and things of people who kept doing it again. And so Peter LaSalle and Jim McCauley, I believe, were very, very... These days, you know, a booker watches your YouTube video and a lot of times they'll go out to see you once and you'll get the gig. <clears throat> Not back then. Right. And your story about getting The Tonight Show, I think, is very inspirational. I, I hope... I don't want to spoil it. I would love you to talk <laughs> about it. Yeah, no, The Tonight Show was the icing on the cake for any comedian. And I started a little after, like Freddie Prince, you could do The Tonight Show in those days, like Freddie Prince, go on, and the next day you have your own series, and it's a hit series. And it was that magical kind of time because there were th three channels that everybody was watching. So everybody wanted to get on The Tonight Show, and I couldn't crack it. I don't know what it was. Uh, you know, the booker at the time... This guy named Jim McCauley was dating a woman comedian. A lot of people thought that maybe that was one of the reasons why he wasn't so hot on. Uh, did she ever do The Tonight Show? Well, of course. She did it a million times. Maureen Murphy. Oh, Maureen Murphy. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But. So that does work. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The age old. Uh, yeah. That still works. It worked then and still now, gals. Um, but anyway. Uh, I just couldn't figure out what it was because someone like Paula Poundstone did the Letterman show and the Tonight Show. But every time they would have me to audition, I would show up and do it. I mean, I would just bring my new five minutes and do it. And it got to the point where, I mean, eight times I auditioned, I couldn't get on the show. Ten times, 16 times. Twenty it took me 22 auditions to get on The Tonight Show. Persistence, everybody. And back then, Jim McCauley, he didn't say, hey, listen, you know that five minutes there? Um, you know that five minutes there? What I'd like to do is I'd like you to do 90 seconds, keep that, and then get rid of this. If I'm not mistaken, he never communicated. It was like you never even knew what right. you did. Yeah. So you no. had to do a new five minutes every right. time. It was like a stealth bomber came in the back of the room and left without anybody seeing. Um, Tell me about the finally getting the call. Tell me about that call. Um, you know what was so cool about it is I, I remember after... It was not only auditioning, but Jay was guest hosting, and he had me on for New Year's Eve doing a sketch, a takeoff of Love Connection. So I was also kind of in the environment. And then I got a call, because uh, I did it in February. Johnny retired in May. I did it in February before he retired. They said, why don't you come on the show? And I was like, I literally put the phone down, and it was one of those, you know, where you're just sitting there for five minutes, stupefied, like, like it finally happened. And, and it went great. I went on. Johnny brought me over to the couch. And for those of you who don't know this, uh, and this is something I can't believe I didn't mention it. Carol Leifer, do you know how many people have gone to the couch on their first Tonight Show? Uh, how many? Less than 10. Oh, really? Wow. I didn't know that. And from my life in Boston, the sixth person that did it was Stephen Wright. Oh, look at that. Oh, my God. Skip Stevenson uh -huh. did it. Freddie Prinze did it. Wow. 
So, and you did it. Yeah, yeah. No, it was amazing. And I have that picture in my office now of me on panel with Johnny. And, you know, it's such a key story in my book because that's, to me now, I look back at that and it's like, I look at it and it still makes me so happy on so many levels. But the big lesson of it is I didn't give up. I just... You want to see me for the 22nd time? Okay, fuckers, here I am again. And with no resentment or anything like that, just doing it again. And that was the time they said, okay, so if anybody offers you the opportunity, take it. And don't take it personally and just show up and do your thing. Show up. Show up and don't have an attitude and just keep doing great work and you'll always win. Absolutely. You played the long game, and in my opinion, that's what I—that's how I perceive the quote in the book. Yeah. Uh, and and but I, I want uh, just uh, so you people know at home, when Johnny uh, brought a comedian on, there were a very very direct set of hand gestures and signals that <laughs> meant things. And almost every comedian that went on, I'd say 90% of the comedians that went on, he would give the okay sign with his hand over to them. Right. And that meant you were coming back. Mm-hmm. Okay. To the other 10 to 20% or whatever it was, I've I'm, got my percentages wrong, maybe 80% the other, um, he would just say, nice job. And that wasn't guaranteeing you anything at uh-huh, all. And uh-huh. chances are you weren't going back on. Yeah. And to 1% of 1% of 1%, they were waved over yeah. the couch. And that was you. And I just want to acknowledge that again, because that is like one of the greatest accomplishments that ever any comedian could ever, ever have. Well, I'm so glad that I waited that long and then when I finally did it, it that it went well I mean how much would that have sucked if after 22 auditions then I go on and I stink up the joint you know <laughs> well, you're ready. and you probably wouldn't have been as good had you gotten it five auditions yeah in. yeah probably I mean whatever but you know man I really always use that example as something you know to show by example to hang in there and don't think, take things personally and take opportunities when they present themselves because you never know when it's going to turn around. And so take us through the first time that you said to yourself, you know what, I, I'm doing this comedy thing, you know, I can make some money, but I've heard that, you know, if you're a writer or a producer, things can go really well. I heard that the, you know, you know I remember early on hearing the minimum wage for a writer Yeah. way back 20 years ago for a week was like, you know, $3,300 a week. And now God, it's, you know, between four and five on certain shows or whatever. The minute, the I bit, don't know the about bare, that figure minimum. because that when I worked at SNL, which was in 1985, I thought I was making a fortune, which was $1,500 a week. So... That was late night, probably. That's the thing. So. Yeah, maybe. So you, so your first gig where you decided, hey, I can write. Where is that? Um. Well, it kind of happened, uh, again, out of the blue because I auditioned for Saturday Night Live to be one of the cast members. Um, Do you remember who auditioned with you? Um. You know, it was at the comic strip. So I remember Larry Miller auditioned. Um, I don't remember anybody else that night specifically, but, um, and I got, I knew that Al Franken, Al Franken was there and, um, Franken and Davis and Jim Downey, who was the head writer. And I knew they liked me still there. I watched the season premiere last night and, um, I mean, two nights ago and 
additional material by Jim Downey. Can't get funnier than him. Um, and they said, we really liked you, but uh, we want to hire you as a writer. And I was like, I'll, I'll take it. So um, that really started And who my was writing. on the cast at that time? It was the year of the weird cast, because it's the first year Lauren Michaels came back to the show after Dick Ebersol. So it was... Was that Anthony Michael Hall? Anthony Michael Hall, Robert Downey Jr., who I know is a kid on the show, 19 probably, um, Joan Cusack, Nora Dunn, Dennis Miller, John Lovitz, uh, Randy Quaid, Terry Sweeney. Terry Sweeney yeah. and Nancy Reagan. Right. And it was the year, uh, I shouldn't say this proudly, <laughs> after I wrote on the show for a year, that the show was almost not renewed that year. It was really... Uh, critically panned and um just didn't really wasn't connecting with people but a great experience nonetheless yeah i remember you said in your book i believe about how uh and i think this is important for our audience how when you're working in a place it's important to not only connect with the people and be great and be a uh, easy hang with the people around you who work on the staff, but it's important to be an easy hang with the person who's at the top of the food chain, yes, which is exactly. Lauren Michaels. Yes, yes. Yeah, Lauren Michaels is another important story, I think, in the book because uh, I just felt like I never connected with Lauren. I just felt like he really didn't love me. And so as a result, I kind of disconnected from him. You know, I kind of flew under his radar. Uh, I would have handled my SNL experience so different were it today because in a situation like that where I see the top of the food chain person isn't really connecting with me, I would do whatever I need to do to try to connect with them, not flee them. <laughs> so um, at the end of the season, um, I, I should have been surprised, but um, I wasn't. I, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I was actually surprised by it because I thought, well, I'm really scoring with the producers, you know, Al Franken and Jim Downey, but... And you were surprised because you weren't renewed. Right, right. I was uh, not brought back to the show. And the big lesson is uh, you can please every number two and number three you want wherever you work. But if you're not pleasing the boss man, number one, um, you're not taking care of business. Have you spoken to him since then? You know what is so funny? Um, as these things happen, you should just, you know, predict it. Uh, my book came out in the spring and I went to New York and I did Howard Stern and The View and Watch What Happens Live and all the big, great press. I come back to L.A. I go to dinner with my friends at a restaurant called E. Baldy on Cannon. And we're celebrating my big book toast. Clink. And to my right is Lauren Michaels sitting at the next table eating. <laughs> but, you know, I, of course, another big tenet of my book, you know, uh, in going over and saying hello to people, I went over to Lauren. I said, hi, how are you? He was very gracious. I said, I have a book out. You know, I tell a story about you, how I really fucked it up at SNL. And he said, oh, you didn't fuck it up. And, you know, I was under a lot of pressure back then. You know, he was so gracious and nice and saying, I think you've done pretty well. You don't really have too much to, shouldn't have anything to feel badly about and whatever. And, 
uh, I said, I'll let you go back to your dinner. And I went back to my table. So it is so funny that, uh, you know, wouldn't that make sense? My celebratory dinner, you know, for my book launch (laughs) at the next table right there. But you see what I'm talking about? I could have been like, guys, it's Lauren over there. Uh, We better get out of here and go to a different (laughs) restaurant. It's like, you know, he's he's uh, a pro. And I have no fear about going over and saying hi. I mean, the the reason I tell the story in the book is, you know, I'm the one who messed up, you know. Uh, He didn't. He was the boss, and he knows what he's doing. And I was just uh, kind of um, a dumb employee in that I uh, avoided him instead of making him my friend. So you've worked with these geniuses, so many geniuses and uh, Lorne Michaels, I consider to be a genius. He is a, he, he is a genius and I will go on record in saying I've never met someone who has such an acute sense of talent. I mean, he is like, you know, uh, the people he's discovered, it is unbelievable i mean i've never seen someone who is so much of a um comedy tastemaker you know and his sensor of comedy talent is awesome absolutely speaking of comedy talent we're going to do a little six degrees of separation here i'm going to mention a name first thing that comes to your mind anything short long sweet whatever it is okay chris rock chris rock uh i go way back with chris uh, a very good example of somebody who, uh, takes the craft seriously. I don't think people would think that right out of the box, but someone who works incredibly hard to be effortlessly funny. Steve Martin. Steve Martin. Um, you know, I wrote for Steve, uh, for the Oscars when he hosted with Alec Baldwin and I was lucky enough to be nominated with the gang, uh, for an Emmy for writing, um, that year. But I have to say, you know, he was such an influence on me to get into comedy. I mean, if there was like Elaine Boozer at the time, there was also Steve Martin. And I remember driving up to his house to write jokes with the rest of the staff that year. And it was one of those things, again, where I had to kind of pull over on my way and just give myself a moment of, do you realize, like, if if I could ever have told my 19-year-old self, you're going up to Steve Martin's house now to write jokes with him and other people, like, how freaky that would be? It was, a, like, a pinch myself moment. And he's actually stayed... Um, as a casual friend, I can't call him a close friend, but he is someone who I reach out to occasionally and uh, we text each other and it still blows my mind to even casually have a friendship with Steve Martin. He's so, his brilliance, you know, I went to see him do his thing with his Steep Canyon Rangers at the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, so multi-talented And not only that, you know, I sent him a note after seeing him at the Hollywood Bowl because it was also like he he does this musical thing that's amazing, but he's also on stage being incredibly funny. And I pointed that out to him in the email because it was like a lot of performers would be like, well, go fuck yourself. This is me doing my musical thing and I don't have to be funny for you because I don't have to. I'm just doing my thing. He's such a pro that he knows 
people want him to be funny wherever they see him. So he does his musical brilliance, but then on top of it, it's also like, and you know what? I'm also going to be funny for you, too. Really out of the park funny, too. Awesome. Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra. Well, another pinch me moment of my career that I got to open for him. Um, a gentleman, uh, a legend. There are very few legends, I think, in the end. A legend, gracious, credited me as his opening act before it would bring me back for a bow every night. Certainly didn't have to do that, but did. And credited the songwriters of each of his shows before he sang them, which I feel as a writer is pretty incredible of someone like that to also tip of the hat to the composition. Gary Shandling. Gary Shandling. Uh, enormously talented. Uh, still a friend of mine. I love when I work for people and... Uh, we stay friends over the years. Um, really amazing drama sense. You know, when I worked at Larry Sanders, he would watch the rehearsals of every scene and just know instinctively what thing was off or what needed to be added to make it not only hysterical, but also dramatically good. He has a really sharp sense. And I wish... We see him more now because he's a little too um, enjoying his life. And I think he should be out there more entertaining us because he is one of a kind. Absolutely. Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney Dangerfield. Well, where we first met, Barry, as you uh, educated me today. Um, you know, another guy who is a legend and I was lucky to know him, lucky to be on his special because like you were describing, to be to get on the Rodney Dangerfield specials was really being kind of touched by God. But, you know, when I think of Rodney now, I think of a story that I believe Jerry Seinfeld wrote in Entertainment Weekly about Rodney. And it's so brilliant to me because it really sums up so much of stand-up comedy and business. I think Jerry in the article mentioned a comic coming over to him at the bar Rodney in the robe and and this kid just kind of racking his brain about advice from Rodney. And I think Jerry said he, you know, Rodney kind of exhaled and said, you know what, kid, you'll figure it out. <laughs> and that's so Rodney. But I think it's also so much of somebody's journey, especially his stand up or whatever field you go into. It's like you can only take so much advice. You yourself, you'll figure it out. Absolutely. Jerry and Larry together working with them. Well, that is also, you know, uh, what we call lightning in a bottle. There are very few things that are lightning in a bottle, but Seinfeld certainly was in the casting of it. But in those two minds intersecting, and I unabashedly compare it to their partnership to Lennon and McCartney, you know, obviously... Uh, Larry being the more John Lennon <laughs> and Jerry having the sunny pop sensibility kind of that McCartney did. But together it was amazing. And how lucky I was and every other writer at Seinfeld that, you know, p writers are so precious about being rewritten. Oh, don't touch my stuff. You know, every draft that people see of Seinfeld, that final episode they was there through their typewriter and to be rewritten by them, uh, you know, how lucky were we all 
um, to be for them to take our stuff and turn it into the Seinfeld episode you see on the air, you know? Absolutely. Your biggest disappointment in show business. Biggest disappointment. Um, you know, I write about that you can't be swayed by the disappointments in your career. You have to kind of keep moving. But, you know, I did have a sitcom, All Right Already, that ran for one season. It's wonderful on the WB. On the WB. I love that. Thank you. And I really am, I do feel that is the biggest disappointment that it didn't go on. I mean, I have some sense of satisfaction that Garth Ann Seer, who was the at, the time, the, at the time, right, has come over to me at every party I see him at over the years and go, oh, I'm so stupid. Why did I cancel your show? I'm so sorry. You know, whatever. I mean, shit happens, you know, but I really do feel badly about that because I really do think we had something great there. Absolutely. Your yeah. proudest moment in show business. Um, It's tough because we talked about it. You know, it's probably either between... The Tonight Show, because I like that, because of the the moment, you know, the tenacity wins out in the end. Um, or Frank Sinatra, because how often can anybody say that they, you know, it's like working with Elvis, you know? <laughs> how many people have that? It, it's either one of those two. And last question, what advice do you have for the young comedian who's going to Queens College or wherever they're working this day job that uh, they don't want to be at and they just have that dream to do something they want to do like you did to, yeah. to get to the next level in their career and to build and to be and have the kind of career that you have as maybe a young comedian or a young you know uh -huh. person in the business. Well, I think when you have a dream, whether that's show business or any other dream, I think it's two things are really important. I think for the show business part, especially for comedy, being take advantage of being young, you know, because when I started as a 21-year-old, you know, uh, I look back now, I don't real I don't know where I got the balls to say, "Oh, I want to leave college and I want to pursue this and I'm going to transfer to another school." I mean, it's stupefying to me, but I think it's about the balls of being young. You don't really think a lot, which is great. And you should take advantage of that because the older you get, the more your life becomes in pen rather than in pencil. And you can't really adjust things as easily as you can when you're young. So take advantage of your youth. But I think the biggest thing that people should remember and whatever they want to pursue is every day you always have to be your own biggest fan. And that's the same thing. I mean, not in the way of being a big headed asshole and a conceited jerk. But if you're not your own biggest fan, who else is going to be? So the things that you want to fight for and are important to you, you have to do every day with conviction and with grace because uh, you're the head of your own team every day. You know, nobody else is you. It has to be you. And I think of so many things that never would have happened for me if I hadn't been my own biggest supporter, because there are so many things out there ready to knock you down every single day. And if you don't say strong and true and focused and convicted, um, nothing good will ever happen. You have to start with that base. Awesome. 
Carol Leifer, you are definitely a force of nature. Your book, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying, Lessons from a Life in Comedy, where you can find this book anywhere. Everywhere. Anywhere sold. and everywhere. And it has been endorsed by <laughs> some of the greatest names in comedy, from Letterman to Riser to the late Rivers to Jimmy Kimmel. Judd Apatow. I guarantee your audience, if they pick it up, they will love it. And I, the beauty of my guarantee is there's really no recourse. If they don't like it, well. Well, they will like it. And because people like No, but you, I guarantee you, with no legal repercussions, you will love it. How could you not? For what a book like this costs, it's invaluable. And uh, I know. Can you, you go on Amazon, it's 15 bucks. It's $9.99, Kindle. It's ridiculous. And, you know, that's the reason why we do these podcasts is so we want to inspire people all over the world. And you have inspired people. Yes. If you're in the Netherlands right now, you're going to fucking love my book. There you go. So you're Spanish. If you're Spanish and you're watching Devious Maids, you are going to love this book because you can get it in Spanish in certain countries. You can get it in Latvian. If you need it in Latvian, you're going to get my book in Latvian. Carol will actually transcribe it I'll read it to you. I'll learn Latvian and then read it to you at night. How to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying. Carol Leifer, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so honored that you're here. It means so much to me. Thank you, Barry. Now take me to lunch. I will. And if you like the show, <laughs> tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. This is Barry Katz with Industry Standard. Thank you. They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders, walk you to fame. You'll get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for. Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain. It's never quite over. It all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.